He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, August 6, 2022. What a great week. It starts off Monday morning. I like it that the Colorado Sun keeps publishing me every two weeks. Bright and early on Monday mornings, I get up, I read it. And normally I like it, but this week I loved it. And I kind of had tears in my eyes as I wrote it about my departure from downtown, my workplace changing for the first time in over 40 years. But I'm loving the DTC and Craig Silverman Law LLC is up and running beautifully. Joe Biden's economy had a great week, huh? Some employment numbers that were good. Gas prices going down. Kansas voted for women's rights. I attended an interesting Attorney General Forum out in Aurora. I will invite John Kellner. I have invited John Kellner. John, where are you? You've been a guest in the past. He's the DA in the 18th JD, Phil Weiser, the incumbent AG, and I hope to get him back on. He's been a guest on before, both of them. In fact, when John Kellner won that uh, recount, we covered it. And uh, it was fascinating. His opponent was ahead, and then there was a recount. And John Kellner is not a supporter of Donald Trump's big lie, and I admire that. A lot to admire there. A lot of interesting questions to go through, because being the head guy in the 18th JD, well, heck, it's the most populous, I do believe. And uh, it's important, just like Fonnie Willis down in Fulton County, Georgia. It's a good week because I have a feeling she's closing in on Donald Trump. Did you know Jenna Ellis's hearing is August 16 in Larimer County Court? I found that out by calling up there. I will be covering that. Looking forward to that on next week's show, but heck, this week's show is something else. Another great thing that just happened as we get ready Friday night for our Saturday publication. Alex Jones held libel. I caught snippets of those closings. Gosh, the lawyering, I second guess. I like doing that. I was Colorado's first guest lawyer analyst on Court TV. And lawyers can certainly second guess like a, well, you know at the end of that word. And we do use the F word on this show with Jerry Bell. Oh my goodness. Talk about a great week. I got together with him early in the week. Bagel deli, pastrami and eggs. I was going to get something healthy, but then Jerry ordered that, and I said, I'll have what he's having. No, not that deli scene, but sort of like that. I did say and enjoy exactly what he was having. Well done, potatoes. And that's what my column was about, was a sausage and cheese omelet. Sorry, Rabbi. Sorry, Doc. 
But I wrote in my column, do read that in the Colorado Sun. I'd be so honored. No paywall, no anything, but a great cause to contribute to. I do, and they pay me, so why don't you help pay me? I don't ask for money on the air, but you know who does? Alex Jones, and it works. My God, you scare people, and then you get them to send you money, and how many dumb people, how many impressionable people, how many times does this guy get to victimize America, you know, his associations. Roger Stone, Donald Trump was on his show. Why don't I like Joe Rogan? I told my kids, I've said this on my podcast, because Joe Rogan has had Alex Jones on, and that guy's beyond the pale. There's a great podcast that just every week breaks down Alex Jones, and they are having a field day. I think it's called Knowledge Fights. Two great podcasters, but I'd like to think this podcast fills a need in the Colorado world, sort of like uh, Nine News Next. They just had their sixth birthday, and they perform a service in this community, and I tried to as well. We talked about that on episode 100 with Kyle Clark. You can go back and listen, and I encourage that. What a great show, but this show It's fantastic. Episode 108, and we talk about the latest current events with Jerry Bell. And he's never done a podcast like this because we go on Joe Rogan length. I don't listen that much, but I understand the style. Tim Ferriss. Now, there's a guy I listen to, and a lot of them. That uh, Friedman guy, I like long form. This is what you get with Jerry Bell because he's been around for 35 years and, what, 86 to 22 over 36 years, right? And he just left KOA after all that time. Before KOA, he was a big, shy young reporter in San Francisco interacting with Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk, he knew him well. And oh my God, wait till you hear that story, you will. If I shut up, but I have to talk to you about my troubadour, our troubadour, Dave Gunders, Heart of Understanding, is his song about people just won't listen. And he has lines in there about where do we go for the truth. And it's about news. And Jerry Bell, he was my boss back in the day. The Capitalist and Silverman Show, or our heyday. Ward Churchill, we don't talk about him much. Oh, a little bit. We talk about a lot of people that he worked with at KOA. Mutual acquaintances, you will just have to listen. And my God, this guy's got a voice. He came to my home studio, and uh, it's good to see him. You know, he almost died a few times. We don't talk about that till the end, because he's strong like a bull. And he's only a little older than me. And he's had a fascinating life in the news business, front row, Colorado, Cherry Bell. After these messages, please enjoy, after that, the Troubadour, Heart of Understanding, all our shows indexed. You know what? I like it on Spotify because I can listen to myself at three times, which is really enjoyable. Better than one times. Try it. Now, on Apple, they only let you go up to two times, and that's good, too. And everybody does Apple, especially that scumbag Steve Bannon. Wait till you hear that podcast on knowledge fights about Alex Jones 
and Steve Bannon together a couple of weeks ago and the shit they've said about each other in the past and how these scoundrels, because it's all coming down. Did I mention that too, why it's a great week? It's all coming down on Donald Trump, and I really want justice there. And we talk about that a little bit with Jerry Bell. Could we do Capitalists and Silverman during Trump era? MAGA world. This is a great episode 108. If you like this show, and I think you will, tell a friend and then have them subscribe. And on Apple, it's a bit of a schlep through the computer, but you can get there. You can give me five stars and two nice comments. I mean, short ones. That's all I need. Because I'm starting to learn how this podcast thing works after episode 108. Trying to get better all the time. And this is proof of that. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, Instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Oh my gosh, what an opportunity this is. My friend, my former boss, Jerry Bell, legendary Denver journalist, radio guy. He survived for the better part of, what, four decades? Jerry Bell, welcome to my studio. Yeah, this is very nice, Craig. I'm impressed. How did you like the green room? Uh, the green room was great, um, and it really was green. It was like a lawn and everything. It's very nice. And the wait staff? Oh, the best. <laughs> Thank you, Trish. <laughs> Holy cow. I was thinking about having my old bosses on. Norm Early may rest in peace. I got one of his last interviews. He was great. And I've interviewed Bill Ritter, who is my boss, for a little bit. And then you. How long were you my boss? Tell everybody about it. Well, it seemed like forever, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know. How long was it? It's got at least How long were you program director over the years? I don't know. I was program director of KAL for... 
a fairly short time, actually. Uh, like, I don't know, it's like three or four years. It wasn't that long. Well, that was pretty, that three or four years of our regular 11 a.m. meetings? Yes. How about those? No, yeah, yeah, I, well, I still, every time it's 11 o'clock, I think, oh, I need to talk to Jerry, tell him what we're going to talk about at three. Yeah, and you always wanted to educate people. And what did I tell you when you say that? What? I would say if I wanted education, I'd go to college, not listen to the radio. You did go to college. <laughs> I can see you want us to talk about your background. San Francisco State, you studied journalism. And let me pay you a compliment, a lot of them, because you were a good boss. And I liked the fact that you wanted us to meet every day. And a lot of people don't give a shit, but you did. And you wanted to put out a quality product, but you are most known as a news guy with good reason because you played it down the middle. I wasn't sure of your politics till we had pastrami and eggs the other day at the bagel. <laughs> but now, I mean, and Kathy Walker, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of great yeah. people, but she was another one mm-hmm. who was just. You guys had a certain ethic. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think that um, you know. I covered a lot of things at the Capitol, but it was always important to me to be able to talk freely with both Republicans and Democrats and try to understand where they were coming from. And I was friendly with both sides of the fence, you know, really, and um, I always wanted to hear people out. What I've learned uh, pretty early on in life is that you have to realize that even people that you disagree with, um, there's probably a reason why they feel the way they feel. It's how they grew up. Um, uh, just how they, uh, you know, what religion they are, um, all different kinds of things go into it. And so you can't take any, a look at them and make them evil or bad. Um, they're n- nice people, it turns out. Right. And they could be uh, your friends. We're and, talking pre-Trump. No, yeah. <laughs> no I, I think it has changed quite a bit. But what I would try to do is I wanted, and it was my goal, to have nobody know where I stood. Um, I purposely never told people where I stood, and I never donated to a campaign. I never put a sign in my yard. Um, I was very protective about that, and I still almost have that tendency now, where I just kind of go, "Well, you know." I, but now I'm uh, now that I'm retired, I have a little more freedom to express, you know, how I feel about things, um, and that's kind of refreshing after you know almost uh, well, we're, uh, 45 years in radio. <laughs> it's 45, 45 years. I, I've been suppressing it. <laughs> just four decades in Colorado. Wait till you hear the California stories. Oh, my. But I like that integrity. And I'm I'm not a journalist like you, but I'm in the media. And I don't give to candidates either because I don't want to be invested in them. Now, sometimes my wife might give money. And, and I obviously take a side. But once you start saying, I'm on this team, well, what happens if they screw up? And I want to be valued for my opinion that I'm going to be objective about it. Or maybe it's just a way to save money. But I, <laughs> There's I, probably that. Yeah, that, there's We're that. Cheap. We're cheap. But you know what I mean? Look, uh, I, I think it's why you stayed in the business so long and why you got access to so many great interviews. Let's back it up to find out how a guy survives 45 years in the industry. Tell us about your upbringing. My upbringing. Well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. I was born in Oakland, California. 
I lived uh, up until the age of about 12 um, in this little community called San Lorenzo, right below San Leandro and um, hay- near Hayward, California. I'm going to take a guess. A lot of Italian-Americans might have been in these Italian-named communities, or was it Spanish? It was more Spanish. I lived The street I lived on was Via Choro, oh. and um, it was a working-class neighborhood for the most part. Uh, a lot of union people, union jobs. Um, my brother used to say, he called said we were East Bay Greece. And sort of that meaning was the working people. What's but, your older brother's name? He's going to listen and he's <laughs> going to want you to talk nice about it. <laughs> well, my older brother is Jeff, a uh, very, very intelligent guy. Um, yeah, he, he, not talking too much out of school on this, but uh, my brother has some mental health issues and, and you know, I help support him. Um, but they occurred later in life than when we were, were growing up. And um, he's well, doing really he, he's, he's doing well. Yeah. Yes. He, uh, well, you know, he's, yeah, uh, he's doing well now, by the way, uh, but he still has issues with depression, anxiety, things like that. All right. So two boys growing up. Yeah. Mom and dad stay together. Yeah, absolutely. Well, absolutely. I take pride in that too, but you never know. I mean, California kind of led the way with <laughs> divorces and all of no. that. No. No. Um, my mom and dad were great. My dad uh, was a businessman, small businessman. His, his name is Gene Bell. Um, and as we've talked, he was originally Eugene Belostowski. And Belostowski is the family name, but he legally changed it because he was in sales and it just kind of zinged a lot better than that. Um, so that's why he changed it. Um, but he was he was good at it. He, he was really good at he would open stores and get them going and sell them and then open another store, get them going and sell them. Um, he was really good at you know finding a location, building up a you know a brand with his stores and then taking the profit. Nice. A kind of a peddler, a kind of yeah. retail. Yeah. And where Belostowski, where's that come from? That comes from an area that is you know, sometimes it was part of Poland, sometimes it was part of Russia, um, and it's actually now uh, where we came from is actually part of Belarus. So the Bella in your name yeah, comes from that? Supposedly, that's part that where that comes from, that region. That There's a lot of different variations right. on Bell names um, in that area. But it's in the Pale of Settlement. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Where they let Jews live without uh, getting murdered every day for a while there. Yeah. <laughs> until they got chased out and came to America. What about your mama? What's her name? My mom was Lorraine, and her maiden name was Cohen. Um, she grew up in Oakland, California. Um, her family came to California in probably just before the 1900s, like about 1890 uh, ish. Um, they were, uh, my great grandfather was peddled, a peddler of sorts. He bought and sold tobacco and cigars. Um, and occasionally in their travels, he supposedly owned some saloons. We were once told as kids, he owned one in Virginia city, Nevada, but oh. I've never been able to verify that. I'm told one of my great grandparents was a bouncer in a bar up in Leadville and then <laughs> down on market street or Larimer. And he was the big guy where I got my height from. Yeah. So these stories are great. But California, what a cool state that is. What an interesting political history. What about your parents? Were they politically active? What were they like? Yeah, my mother was very politically active. And as we were growing up, she was a Goldwater Republican. And we were, we were the Goldwater family in amongst a sea of Democratic families. And, um, but, but she worked hard for some candidates for Congress and such. 
And the John Burt Society took an interest in her. And I remember this so clearly. Um, some people from the John Burt Society came over to the house and they were trying to recruit my mom and my dad into the John Burt Society. Well, our last name is Bell, so they don't necessarily realize that we're Jewish. And they let go some opinions about Jews in this meeting. And I remember my dad physically removing them from our house and telling them, don't ever show your face here again. <laughs> um, and what about your mama? How uh, did she react? She was, you know, obviously deeply offended and disgusted. And it sort of began this movement for her where by the time the Vietnam War got going, she was very anti-war. Her stepbrother had been in the Battle of Bulge as a medic and had his stepped on a mine and had his foot blown to no. bits. Um, he survived that, but he had ruined his life. So she was What's very- What's his name? His name was um, Alan Cohen. Can I just salute Alan Cohen? Because yeah. he's probably a year or two older than my old man who got drafted out of West yeah. High. And they accelerated his boot camp because the Battle of the Bulge was going so shitty. Mm -hmm. And he was scared to death. And then the tide turned thanks to the heroism of Alan Cohen and others. And by the time he was done with basic, they had won. And he got to save Oklahoma and Texas. Yeah, well, you know, my uncle, he... Um you know, he went through years of surgeries and things to restructure his foot. He ended up having like a wooden foot. Um, and he was a big outdoorsman. And uh, this kind of just changed his life around uh, in not in a great way. Um, so my mom carried that. And then she became very disillusioned with, with this war to the point where she was looking at her two sons and she was saying, I don't want my sons to participate in this war um and my brother who was older 18 months older you know she looked at you know conscientious objection um looked at you know can <laughs> does he have bone spurs <laughs> you've heard that one right yeah <laughs> and can um, we pay did you have enough money to pay off a doctor uh, no and so i eventually my parents decided and this was a huge step and um they decided my dad sold his business, sold our house. We packed up um, what we had left in a country square station, station wagon, one? the 429 V8. That, the paneling, yeah. And, and, and we had a little tent trailer behind that. And we spent three months going across America sort of as a goodbye tour because we were going to move to Canada. And Did we, you? Um, we sort of did. We ended up in Vancouver, and we had to, we met this wonderful family in real estate. And his name, his last name was Fluvog. There's a shoe brand now that's called Fluvog. I don't know if they're related or not, but he wasn't ready. He did bought this house and he wasn't ready to move yet. So he said, "You can live there for free." Amazing, right? Yes. And um, so we did. Um, and my dad was trying to figure out how to get a business going, and it just wasn't really working out. So then we had a family vote about what we should do if we should go back to the United States. Um, I would say that I was the lone vote for staying in Canada because oh. um, I liked it there. And I remember 
it was a tumultuous time in America. I remember picking up the Vancouver Sun and looking at these pictures of American military people on the Capitol steps and stuff like that when there were protests and riots and that kind of stuff. Um, but I got outvoted. So we moved back to the Bay Area, this time in Northern California in the town of Santa Rosa. And um, my dad started businesses there. This was 1969. And it proved to be a great place to, to move. And that time, that was a great town. Went to a great junior high and high school there before I went off to college. But you told me that even when you were in college, you had a career path. I didn't. Well, I, I thought I wanted to be a basketball player. That's how stupid <laughs> I was. And it wasn't until that was over, I realized, well, law school's a backup for me. <laughs> but when did you start? Didn't you always want to be a radio guy? No. Um, I kind of, what happened with me is I was kind of a lost kid and I couldn't figure out what the heck I wanted to do in, in high school thinking about, I had like no idea. Um, my mother always pushed me and said, well, you're a good writer, you know, do something with writing. Um, and so eventually I became the editor of the high school paper and I won my first award uh, from the San Francisco press club for an expose we did about the superintendent of schools. Um, it was a long story, but um, so then I got this taste for it. I was going to be a print journalist guy. Uh -huh. And so San Francisco State had this great print journalist program. It was taught by either current or former people who worked for the two big newspapers there. So it was more like a trade school. And I learned how to, you know, we'd do things like they'd hold a fake press conference and then we had to write the story in five minutes under deadline pressure and we had typewriters nice. and stuff my whole career that training was so valuable i could always turn things around really quick and i was just trained that way it was great education i'm but, looking at you and i bet you've been to about five million press conferences keep going okay <laughs> so anyway i you know uh, one day i wander through the broadcasting department separate department and i come upon the radio station and i found out that the news there had news so I, the, the radio station only broadcast to like the dormitories <laughs> because previously it had broadcast over air and um, that was during a period of time when there were riots at San Francisco State and there's this famous picture of the president of San Francisco State University who went on to become a U.S. Senator, S.I. Hayakawa, pulling the cord on this big, huge, giant speaker on top of a truck. That speaker and that truck were part of the radio station. So they decided at San Francisco State, you could only broadcast out to the wall. <laughs> and that was going to be it. But there's a radio When Hayakawa did that, were you there? I was not there. I came before. in after that. That's probably one of the things that scared your mother. <laughs> I don't know. But, you know, we, um, we, we still had a really viable news team there. And we had an advisor who was, worked at KGO Radio. It's a big, famous station in San Francisco. And he was a great guy, and we learned a lot about it. And there was just a group of us, I could say, in, in this sort of broadcasting department. I, there was like 10 of us, and I could say, we're all going to make it. We're all going to make it into this business. And the rest of them, you know, they're going to be flipping pizzas or whatever. And it was pretty much the way it went. Wow. Um, and uh, I was lucky. I got an internship at a radio station, um, KIOI K101 FM in San Francisco, and I worked that internship into a job. 
And so I was 20 years old when I got my first professional radio paycheck. And where did you buy that voice? <laughs> That's another interesting one. Um, I literally had this chance. I, I did a lot of reporting, and there was an anchor position opening up. And they looked at me and said, you know, I you sound like this. You know, and I did. And I had a couple of people I knew who just worked intensively with me to get my voice the right way. And um, I always joked that it was whiskey and cigarettes, but that's not it. Um, did you drink whiskey? Um, a little bit. Did you smoke cigarettes? I did smoke them okay. a little bit. But I, the key for me was just a simple thing. It was putting my hand on my chest and feeling for a vibration. Because when you're using your full vocal instrument, you'll get a vibration there if you're doing it right. So we're going to work on you, Silverman. Jesus Christ, you were my boss for three and a half years. <laughs> Never told you that. the first time you're telling me this shit. <laughs> it right, doesn't necessarily ahead. make it's it deep. all right. I have a distinctive voice. It, makes it, it doesn't make your voice necessarily deeper. It makes it what I call fuller. Fuller. And um, so you're, because you're using the whole thing just like right. a singer would do. Right. And so long story short, I got good enough to get a job doing some anchoring. And um, I, I did that. Um, but mostly, I was a reporter. I worked out of San Francisco City Hall. There was a press room there, and there was um, like about five of us radio reporters that were in there and some other reporters. Um, and we, I literally didn't go to an office. I went to the City Hall. Now, I'm intrigued by this. Did your brother and your parents say, what's up with your voice? Do you sound different? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So I think you were blessed with it. I think, you no. know, it's, it, to an extent, the way your voice is, it's sort of like how tall you are, or if you're left-handed or right-handed. Boy, I, I wish I could. I should have brought tapes from when I was in college doing radio. And if you heard what I sounded right, like, right? You had you would all the like, whiskey and the cigarettes. Uh, yeah. I knew I. Well, we we, we did we, we did party a lot back right. in those days <laughs> in radio. That's what I want to get to. <laughs> yeah, I knew you did. Yes, the California Golden Years. Was it as crazy and wild as everybody talked about? Yeah. It was incredibly Do wild. Tell. San Francisco isn't that kind of a prudish city? Oh, no. <laughs> um, what you know, years are we talking about now? Well, we're talking um, 1976 through 1986 was when I was there at Ian Radio. Is the word debauchery? Yeah, that was debauchery for sure. Um, I can remember the first time um, I went to, for Halloween. It was This was before the Castro, famous Castro district there. There was Polk Street. And I went for Halloween, and you know there were mattresses thrown out on the street, and people were having sex out on the street on Polk Street. On Polk Street, that's too easy. Uh, yeah, um, There was another Halloween tradition there that was called the Exotic Erotic Ball, where people would come, you know, with their date, leading them by leash and that kind of stuff. Um, it was crazy, and then. Now, are you participating or uh, spectating? Only a voyeur. <laughs> um, covering, covering. You know? oh. <laughs> but I have to tell you that um, it was kind of interesting because during this time, um, you know, San Francisco became this mecca for gay and lesbian people. because And they got there and it was like... Um, well, wait, wait, was it, because a lot of people will think it was always that way. No, it was. It when was, did it change to become that way? Well, it's 
really like about that time. I think it was, I don't know how exactly it changed. It became like, so maybe like almost a natural occurrence. City was pretty liberal. People came there um, and gradually the, um, this area in the Castro district kind of developed. Um, Harvey Milk, who's a familiar name there, had a camera store right there on Castro Street. Um, their people were becoming more active. And there was just, there's this great book, it's called And the Band Played On. It's written by a guy named Randy Schultz, who I knew. Um, he was a TV reporter for a while, newspaper reporter. He ironically died of AIDS. But he wrote this book, and it was about this time where, you know, Gay people were going to these bathhouses. They were having, you know, as one later, uh, a supervisor in San Francisco told me they were having sex like bunnies. <laughs> they were just, everyone was doing everybody and they're spreading AIDS. And they're in total denial that this is happening. Um, and one of my all-time heroes, Craig, shares your last name, Dr. Mervyn Silverman. I don't know if he's related in any way to you. He was the director of the Department of Health, and he was the guy who padlocked the bathhouses. And as a result of that, he, he was run out of town, literally run out of town. And uh, he went on to work for some AIDS charities and things in New York, but he saved thousands of lives, thousands. Wow, literally. so many of these stories have application today because... I've heard some public health officials say about monkeypox, let's talk about it. It's from gay sex, and it's not doing them any favors not to talk about it. Then it will spread to other communities. But my goodness, I'm just thinking about it. And from the listener's perspective, I think it's fair to say we're, well, I don't know. I've always thought you were a heterosexual. Yeah. You've had beautiful women at <laughs> yeah, your side yeah. all the time. I was. I um, I did in San Francisco. Um, the owner of the radio station I worked at was a gay man, and there was quite a few people, gay and lesbians, who worked at the radio station. Some of them didn't survive through this period. Um, and it, it was it was horrible. But you have to understand, they had come to San Francisco. They had this incredible freedom to be who they could be, and then somebody's going to come and tell them you can't do that. Um, that's a, you know, it's hard to make that transition. It eventually did happen, but not after th literally thousands of people died. I can't tell you, there was just seemed like there was funeral after funeral mm -hmm. that, during that period of time, and it, it, was a, it was a dark, dark time in that city. Were you single or married then? I was single then. So tell us more about San Francisco. Who were the characters? Harvey Milk, my goodness. How well did you know him? I uh, knew him pretty well. Um, I covered the city hall, and he was a supervisor. That's kind of like their city council because it's a city and county. Um, covered him, um, covered the council, and um, but really got to know him in an unusual way, which is um, – there was a time where people wanted to ban the book Huckleberry Finn. This comes up every now and then. Um, because, because of the N-word? Because of the N-word, because of the dialect from the character of Jim. It makes him sound you know, mm -hmm. enough, you know, not very smart and that kind of stuff. Uh, missing the whole point of the book, by the way. Um, so I, I, had, um, I was still in college, even though I was working professionally. I had written um, sort of an op-ed piece about Huckleberry Finn and the message of the book and why this was sort of really, really stupid to try to ban it. And one of my professors worked at the San Francisco Examiner, and he read it. He says, I'm going to publish this. Nice. And so I said, great. So they published this 
thing in the examiner. And so I'm in city hall and I see Harvey and Harvey says, Hey, I want to talk to you. And I go about what? He goes, love that piece that you did. He says, come back to the office. And so we come back in the office and it turns out he's this huge Mark Twain fan. Um, and so we talked with Mark Twain and that kind of stuff. And so we kind of had that kind of relationship. It didn't really go anything beyond that, but, but we were friendly. We knew each other. And there were a couple of moments. Uh, it was a great moment. Um, when um, they defeated Amendment 6, in, or not, uh, Proposition 6 in California, which would have banned gay people from teaching in schools. And Harvey went all over the state, and he was a very engaging guy, and he really got that thing defeated. And I remember being in City Hall where they were counting the votes in San Francisco, and he had been down in L.A. and somehow flown up to San Francisco. And I remember him walking we were, I was coming out, and we were walking through the rotunda past each other, and he just looked at me and said, Jerry, we did it. <laughs> you know, and I'll just never forget that moment. Um, it was a, it, a really cool moment for me. Uh, what about the movie? Yeah, I can see you're getting mm-hmm. a little bit clumped. Yeah, I am a little bit clumped well, about it. Because you liked him that much? Yeah, I mean, this was, you know, the, the fame surrounding him, is it's interesting. He's an interesting guy. You, you know, he was in the Navy. Um, he had, uh, he grew up in this activist family in, in, in New York. Um, they were very active politically. Um, but he had this weird way that he traveled to get where he was. And then he found himself being sort of this leader, but he was so smart and he could talk off the cuff like nobody's business. And he was engaging. He just broke down that barrier. If, if you were someone and you were homophobic or you didn't know what to think of gay people, you still liked the guy. And that's how his likability factor was just through the roof uh, when he was one-on-one with people. He had amazing skills. How far there. could he have gone? You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I conceivably think that he could have become at least mayor of San Francisco at some point. Um, that would have been possible. Um, hard to know. Um, it's... Uh, but he, but he was. He Sounds did, like he really saw something special. In yeah, this he guy. was so eloquent. And uh, in contrast, the guy who killed him, Supervisor Dan White, mm-hmm. um, was totally different. Dan had a a temper. And I tell people when I would cover the supervisors' meeting, when Dan got mad, he, you know those old cartoons where somebody gets mad and their whole face turns red. That was Dan. He would just flushed. And it was a little frightening. And uh, to the point where I was on a day off, actually, on the day the assassinations of Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone happened. And they called me, of course, to go cover. And they said, um, you know, the mayor and Milk have been shot. And and my first response was, who did it? Dan White? Uh. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of background there that's covered in the movie and other things about why you would think that. But that was my immediate reaction. Did you like the movie? Um, didn't I? Didn't um, I think he, they did a pretty good job of of, of what it was? Um, you know, I didn't. It's hard. To, you know, when you really know somebody um, or feel like you know somebody, there's bits and pieces that are missing from a portrayal. But overall, it was a good movie. Who are the other big California characters you covered? Um, Governor Jerry Brown. <laughs> Um, my great story with governor Jerry Brown was, um, he was just a guy who would really 
just lay it out there. <laughs> and I remember there was, after he was governor, he was he ran for Senate. And um, but before he announced for Senate, I was at a group of news directors. There's a news directors group in the Bay Area, and we had our annual meeting. And Jerry Brown was the keynote speaker, and we were in this little town called Emeryville, which is just right across the bay from San Francisco. Like you know, it's built on landfill. <laughs> um, so Jerry's up there giving a speech, and then he takes questions, and somebody gets up and says, you know, so Governor Brown, you know, there's a rumor that you're going to run for Senate. Would you like to announce that right here before all of us? And Jerry says, well, if I was going to run for senator, I sure as hell wouldn't announce it in fucking Emeryville. Oh, <laughs> that was a piece of Jerry Brown. He ended up losing that uh, race to Pete Wilson, who was the mayor of San Diego, a Republican. Um, and he won the first Colorado primary yes, when he, he did. ran for yes, president. Yes, he did. He also did uh, – he was mayor of Oakland for a while. And mm. while he was mayor, they really shaped up Oakland, sadly to say, since I go out there a lot, um, since he's long departed that position, it's gone back downhill. But when he was there, it ran really well. Sounds like you were the king of San Francisco. Why did you leave? Um the same reason that people are re leaving now, believe it or not. Um, I got married and I wanted a house. And in order to have a house and live on a radio salary, and I was actually paid pretty well at the station. I think I was the second highest wage earner at the station at this, this time. Um, I was going to have like three hours a day of commuting. And I just said, I don't want to do this. What time did you need to be at work? Um, well, I was working morning drive, you know. Oh, so you'd have to, what, leave your house yeah, at 3 a.m.? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, maybe earlier than that. Um, Where were you going to live, north or east? Uh, I probably had to leave uh, live east. was probably the more affordable. Um, and my wife was um, going, at that time, I was going to UC Davis, and she got her Ph.D. in political science, and she was from Denver. Um, we looked at a whole bunch of different places to live. So I came to Denver, I literally left San Francisco without having a job waiting in Denver. And we lived in my father-in-law's apartment for about six months. Um, I was lucky to get- Tell us about your beautiful bride. She was so beautiful. Oh, she was great. Um, super, super smart. Um, she got a- What was her original name? Um, Julie Davis. Julie Davis. And her, her father is a really interesting guy. He was the general manager of the original Denver Nuggets of 1948, 49, and oh, 50. Yes. And um, if. A screwing time. Uh, well, yeah. And he, some of his other pl players were um, uh, a guy named Morris Udall, who was a player yes. for him. Yes. Uh, Jimmy Darden, who was for years and years the basketball coach out at Mines. Coached against me and, at Colorado College. And then another guy named Vince Barilla, who became the GM later on of the Nuggets. And his kids played Bombers baseball with me. Yeah. And I, yeah, I know the Barilla family. So um, there's a famous story. I don't want to get too far off on a tangent. Yes. But there's a famous story called The Year They Played for Nothing. Um, so it was a struggling entity at that time. So they decided they would sell shares in the team for $1 and that they would give, instead of pay to the players, shares of the team. Well, they spent most of the year in 1950, like if they go on the road, they wouldn't stay at the same hotel twice because they were stiffing them on the Please. bills. 
Um, and I have all these documents of all these letters. What's your demanding father-in-law's name? Hal Davis. Hal Davis? Hal, H-A-L. Oh, Hal, not like Harold, like Harold not Davis. Not like the Raiders, Hal Davis. No. Hal Davis. Yeah, so... Uh, so what a character. So suffice to say, at the end of this season, the thing folded, and the players got nothing. So it was the year they played f- for nothing. Um, but he, That's so, another book. You <laughs> yeah. have so many books to write anyway, now. That's I diverged from there, but this was... Um, their, their family um, came, his family, Hal's family, it was in uh, Wyoming, and um, Jackie, his wife, was from there, and then they came into Denver. Uh, I think, I actually think Jackie was from Denver and graduated from East. So there was a whole series of people from East High School, from the family that nice. went there. Nice, that's where my, my mother went. went. They're all angels. There. Yeah, they're all angels. Anyway, um, she went on to. Uh, she got involved in politics. She with really with I think Pat Schroeder. Um, she was really kindled her interests. She was a page at a Democratic convention in New York. Um, so she got a master's at DU in um, public policy and then a doctorate on political science from UC Davis because we were out there. I made her move. Um, so she came back here for a short time. She was the political director for the Democratic Party. And then she got sick of partisan politics and went to the National Conference of State Legislatures where she ran all their programs dealing with education and um, built a really solid program there. All right, now we have to hear your Colorado wow story because every guest from out of town, I think John Kellner, back when he came on my show, told me about this, or I heard it at the AG's debate the other night, but... Federico Pena talked about coming to see his brother Alfredo mm-hmm. in Denver. You come, all of a sudden, you see the front range. Well, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but did you have one of those, this is tremendous, or, hey, I'm from California. I've seen all this beauty before. Well, I had been out to Denver because when I was dating Julie, she was, right. I was actually introduced to her by her cousin, who was my college roommate. So I had been out to Denver a couple of okay. times. So I knew Denver. Um, I knew it to be, you know, a, a great city and it was so different from my California experiences, especially being a reporter, you know, like in Denver at that time, I could run into the governor at the supermarket. That would never happen in California. Right. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like, uh, nobody who was a politician moved 10 feet without an entourage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was really pleasing. And there was great opportunity here. As it turned out, I ended up getting a job at the old Kim radio. Um, It was a part-time deal. I did the first, well, among the first people to do newscasts on a station called KYGO, which became a big deal. And, but it was, those were music stations. And I had come from a music oriented station and I really wanted to do news. So I under, I heard that there was this opening at KOA and um, I, actually knew the person who had left who or um um god what is yeah. her name i gotta remember her name there's some news woman a, yeah and she was a, she knew a friend of mine what year was this this is 86 still okay um so i i kind of ascertained what they were looking for and and all that and just really went after it and because i really wanted to work at a place where news was you know like number one you know it was what they did and um so I started at KOA. I was working from 10 a.m. to, um, no, sorry, 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. 
So it's kind of covering a little bit of news in the afternoon and then anchoring at the night on the night side. Every hour and every half hour? Uh, I think we were only doing every hour then. I'm not sure. I don't remember. <laughs> 30, anyway, KOA. 35 years ago, Craig. No, but KOA <laughs> is the news monster. And, and we all know you ended up dominating it. How many years did you work at KOA? 35, exactly. How many different titles did you have? Um, let's see. Reporter, anchor, assignment editor, news director, program director, managing editor. That's six, I guess. What was, what was the best time there? When were the golden years? For me, the golden years were um, when I was news director. Um, had a great program director, Chris Olinger. Had the best general manager in the business, Lee Larson. And a team of other people that were like the best team I've ever worked with. So creative, so on top of things. Uh, we were like in our, we were a juggernaut, all of us what together. What years were those? Um, that's probably like right around 19, somewhere between 1991, 92, mid-ish 90s, I guess. The mid-ish 90s. Yeah. We just had, we had in, it from our sales manager, Dick Carlson, um, all these people were, uh, Kenny Marks, who was our promotions director, best promotions director I ever worked with. Uh, the This was just a group of people that had it all together and they all complimented one another and it was unstoppable. It was the greatest feeling ever. Were you out at the building in the DTC or downtown? Downtown. Started in the building downtown. When, when did uh, the operation move out southeast? Oh, I, well, you know what? I don't remember the exact year, but I can tell you the story of how the news department moved out there. Yeah, tell me. Well, we were so we, there's a building out still out there in the Denver Tech Center that was being retrofitted and built up as, you know, these, there's like eight radio stations in there. Um, so... Meantime, they were, as things were moving in phases, um, people were leaving. Well, one day, somebody who's doing removal cut through, I don't know what, but the newsroom just goes dark and all uh -huh. the computers die. And they look at us and said, grab everything. And we did a car caravan down to the new building. We walk into this newsroom. It's like um, a mash unit. And we're doing newscasts from our desks and the wiring and everything was still was kind of fouled up. So you'd be on the air and something from another station would come through. It was like a, for a month in November, I remember this, it was the hell November. <laughs> and that's the only thing I remember it was, it was hell, but literally every day a surprise. And that's the way you started. And isn't that the way you ended with the studio looking like that or the newsroom? The yeah, they're doing a retrofit that's been taking forever. I don't know where it is now, but um, yeah, it was, it, and it was weird because sometimes moving is tough and these things, the amount of electronics that are in a building with radio stations is huge. Um, KOA and um, that building, I believe we have our own uh, telephone prefix. There's so many phone lines and things right. in there. Um so the amount of electronics and things is just incredible and computerization, um, which, by the way, is a godsend. Um, when I started, we used to have to uh, cut tape with a razor blade. We use a grease pencil to mark the spot and cut with a razor blade. You only get one shot at that. So you have to be really, really confident how you put it together. And I did a documentary with uh, a woman named Aneth White on Alan Berg. 
And I think it was an hour, and it must have had 250 of those splice edits in it. <laughs> it was just crazy. Now, you guys were cooking with gas, and you bring up Alan Berg, but he died before you got there. Yes. But one of your first projects was uh, special about uh, the trial and the murder of Alan Berg? Yeah. And um, I would say I, I worked with Aneth White, who was Alan's producer, and we went through a lot of archive tape with Alan. We interviewed people who knew him. Um, we also talked to people who knew about the order, the which was the group that killed right. Alan Berg, and the whole movement um, is called Identity Christianity Movement uh, that was going on through the West at that time. Everything uh, old is new again. Yeah, and what I remember so much about it is a. Um, I learned about who this guy Alan Berg was, and he was funny as heck. He was just like, you know, I think a lot of people never saw the smile. You know, he, right. was, he was famous for cutting people down and, you know, and that kind of thing. But it, I think the people who enjoyed it could clear to see the smile in that. Um, but he also did just topics that you don't hear on talk radio anymore. He had one that was I loved, which was when you're going for a job interview, do you have a lucky suit? Because he he came from haberdashery, that's where his background was. I definitely do. How yeah, about you? I, I, yeah, I did. You know, I sure I did. And then he had another one that was um, there was this thing they came out where they um, had a button you could, they, you could push at your grave and you could talk to the people. And so you know he was doing what would you say you know on your little button? And he said his his message was going to be I'm still alive. Dig me up. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah. I have covered him to a great extent because his wife, Judith, uh, was good enough to give me a podcast interview. David uh, Savitz, who is a good friend of his, an attorney. Harold Dubinsky gave me great sound. Just Google it, Allenberg, my name. Uh, he was, you know, that affected me a lot because I'm a Denver guy and I listen to him and I like talk radio. Yeah. And when he got shot, I was a young deputy DA and I... I wished I could have been more involved, and I still question some of those decisions. Yeah. I told Norm that, too. So I recall when he got shot, Norm Early was on KOA the next day hosting his show. I mean, it was unbelievable. That was one of the most yeah. devastating crimes in Denver yeah. history. And I don't know if you've ever heard, um, there's tape from that night from uh, Ken Hamblin, who was right. a talk shows, and it's the most powerful thing I've ever heard where he talks directly to the people who did it it, it's it's just uh, it's amazing um at history colorado they have a they have a podcast there that's called lost highways and they have one on alan berg and i think that audio is included in that could alan berg do it today you know i don't think he could um because he wasn't now we've gotten what's happened with talk radio and i'll, I'll just say it from my point of view i was so happy i i, I programmed talk radio um and then I had a chance to go back in the news and I jumped at it because I was kind of sick of talk radio because it became this thing where um, it's just talking to the, you know, preaching to the choir kind of thing. Um, and I think very divisive and not necessarily educational. And then talk radio you used to be about interacting with callers. Now the trend of talk radio is don't take very many calls. Don't take any calls at all. Right, but who makes these rules? Um, you know, it, 
I don't know. I mean, somebody says, you know what? But you were the boss. Uh, you were our well, talk I, radio boss. I didn't do that. That's why I wanted to get out of it. It's what are, I'm just talking about where it is now. Is the rule of thumb is people are tuning in just because they want to hear who what Craig Silverman or whatever this one thinks. So there's not really a talk. It's a lecture. I, but <laughs> it's it's a game. The conversation, the banter. That's what it's all about. I'm stunned by the amount of talk show hosts who cannot have a conversation. Alex Jones, good example. He started in radio as a young guy. Yeah. Doing we he said he liked Larry King. Larry King could give a kibitz at night, right? Yeah. On his overnight, he could talk, show personality. You got to be able to talk to people, but so many people just are bent on pushing their agenda or whatnot. I think it could be a beautiful medium, especially if you do it with kind of a, a grin on your face. Yeah. And your well, experience was amazing because you were the program director, not just for like uh, Capitalist and Silverman. Like you had Peter Boyles, right? Yeah. And you had uh, 760, the progressive talk. Right, right. And that that's that's quite anything else? <laughs> no, that was enough. You know, I think that um, you know, there what I tell people when they ask me about it is for whatever reason, um, well, here's the reason. When talk radio began to veer in this political realm, there was this dearth of places for people who were conservative to have conversation. So talk radio drifted in an area and filled that void. Now we've got, you know, Fox News. We've got all these other different, you know, places that you can go on the Internet to get stuff. Um, so it's not that singular focus. So consequently, if you look at ratings, you'll see that the talk radio stations that used to be really high up in the ratings have kind of drifted down somewhat. I'm being overly generalizing here, mm -hmm. um, but that's happened. And I think that uh, for progressive people, liberal people, when we did that, um, it was at a time right after the contested you know, election with Bush and Gore right in there, that pocket. Right. And there was a lot of angry people. So the programming on the left-wing station, if you were, was kind of angry, like the conservative stuff had become. So it was the name-calling and the you know, snide remarks, that kind of stuff. And that played out for a few years. Um, but generally speaking, over a period of time, I think people who lean more to the left side of aisle um, had been and are back now on, on NPR stations. Um, that's what they like to listen to. They've just they're, given up on they're, talk radio. Well, they're, they're not into the yelling and the screaming and, and that stuff. Um, I mean, there's a faction. There's, fa there's a faction that still is. What about what Dan and I did? And I see in trials, I mean, I'm just saying, what about back and forth? I mean, CNN tried it with Crossfire. Because yeah. to me, I like the courts. I like the yeah. adversary process. Let two sides argue it, and the audience determines who's winning. That's sort of fun, like a sporting event. Yeah, I, you know, I, and we, we tried that, and I think we were fairly successful with it. Mm -hmm. Um but I think that um, I think it's difficult. I applaud you guys for being able to do it because it's. I think it's somewhat hard to sit chair by chair and talk about issues that you disagree with. And I think I told you the other day when we were talking when I really loved you two guys is when you were together going after topic because one of the things we tried to position KHOW at that time was not left or right, right or wrong. And right. when you guys jumped on something like lawyers jump on something, 
that was the wheelhouse for that show to me. <laughs> Ward Churchill. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, did not let go, um, backed it up all the way. Uh, you know, it was spellbounding for, for listeners because no one was going to be able to put up an, an argument against it all because you guys had it nailed out. And actually, it was just chasing a story, which talk radio can do a great job because yeah. you can get guests on, you can get fresh opinions. It was sort of like the internet before it took off. Yeah. And uh, Jean Benet was a good example of that, et cetera. That's why it's disappointing to me that there's nobody on talk radio yeah. who will chase down January 6th. This is yeah. the greatest story of all time. There are so many characters, Cassidy yeah. Hutchinson, but they won't even talk about yeah, it. Yeah, now, now, now if they do, it's, you know, what you have is what I call talking point radio. If right. you listen to the one side, you get the talking points for that side. If you listen to the other one, you get the talking points. Um, original thought... Um, you know, some some of it is, it, for lack of a better way of putting it, to me, it's just lazy. It's easy to to right. follow the talk points um, rather than really try to have some sort of discovery. Um, and, and it's the same way I feel on television now with the cable networks. They're so predictable. Um, although I was shocked the other night I was watching a show on CNN and they actually had a Republican on the panel, like a real Republican. <laughs> Not like usually the Republicans they have are like, super liberal Republicans, but they actually are like a real Republican. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. I make no bones about it. I can't stand what Donald Trump has done to this country, and he's ruined so many things. And 
you could say he ruined the Republican Party, but I think we can see they were headed in a direction. Same thing with talk radio. It was headed in a direction, but don't you think Trump kind of finished it off? You can't have a debate show. You can't really have... I, I don't well, know how to debate somebody who wants to... Yeah, you can't, is, is, you can't have a debate unless you can stipulate, stipulate to a certain set of facts, right. which is pretty hard to do now. Um, so, yeah, I think so. I don't know. I'm not so quick to bury the Republican Party. Um, things change over time. Um, you know, I notice here in Colorado, I think Republicans got it a little bit. They got their butts kicked in the last election here. And now they've nominated some more that's moderate that's candidates. That's because unaffiliated like me saved their ass by having Pam Anderson and the, and the non-nuts on Joe Day said where you are sitting. And I was going to make sure that this Ron Hanks, Tina Peters, I left my old law firm because they chose to represent Tina Peters. I want nothing to do with the big lie or anybody swelling it. It's, yeah. it's It could ruin our country, don't you think? I, I, I do think it could do that, absolutely. But I also think that um, in the end, from a pol political standpoint, people want to win. They don't want to lose. So in Colorado, I'm looking at Colorado now. In right. Colorado... Um, that might do you well in El Paso County um, and some other places in the state, some of the rural areas. But the name of the game is the front range, and the name of the game has been for years, and I think it's still true. It's suburban women voters in Jeffco, Arapaho, and Larimer County. You win, you win that vote, you win the election. And I think some of the things that are happening now, especially with the Supreme Court ruling on Roe v. Wade, um, fears about whether somebody's going to go after contraception and other things like that um, is going to energize women voters and I, and independence, I think, as well. And you've already seen an example of it in Kansas um, where that abortion measure <laughs> was defeated there. Uh, so I think that that's part of it. Um, and that it, and also in Colorado, if you look at the registration numbers, it's just bad news for Republicans. They're they're third, you know. And, See, this is and, why you are here, Jerry Bell. There are two things that he knows better than anything: storms. My God, we haven't talked about it. He gets so <laughs> yeah. excited anytime there was a storm. It was just kind I of love chasing storms. It's like the way people see ice cream or something. I mean, <laughs> you'd see a cloud formation, you'd go nuts, but or something. But you know Colorado politics, and you know Denver politics, so keep going with that, because this is your wheelhouse. Well, I bet you've known, you've known every Colorado official for three or four decades. Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, the one thing I just want to underscore is, is, look, the largest voting group in Colorado it used to be a third, a third, a third. It's mm -hmm. not that anymore. 40% right. of the voters are independents right now. Uh, it, it, it keeps, that independent group keeps growing, and... They're the ones, that's why we were a swing state. They're the ones who swing um, one way or the other. But the, the evidence would show you that the Colorado independents in the last few elections have leaned Democratic. And, you know, certainly Joe Biden won those voters. Um, Donald Trump's not that popular in a lot of parts of the state. He's popular in some, um, but it's not that popular in others. Who and got I, the most votes ever in Colorado history running as an independent? That's a good question, and I don't know that answer. I think it's me. 
It's when you. I run against Ritter as an independent <laughs> in 96. Well, there you go. I didn't really come that close to no. winning, but I, I, you interviewed me. I did, I yeah, did. Yeah, so it was, and I came to KOA. We had an yeah. interview at Mike Rosen. And I came in a golf shirt. Ritter's all dressed up. Rosen, for a change, dressed up. And they took a front-page picture, and it looked like, is this guy serious? You know, uh, I said, I thought it was radio. Go yeah, ahead. Well, yeah, that's the thing about radio. You can do it in shorts and the T-shirt, right. and no one knows. Um, although these days, they, you know, then they started to put webcams in the studios and things like that. That was kind of weird. But I uh, think so. But what about, but it, yeah, but tell anyway, me about Colorado politics. Where are we headed? Well, you know, I, it, 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 it's interesting because I think that, uh, you know, when we've had, for example, we haven't had that many in recent history Republican governors. Bill Owens would be the only one. And Bill Owens, I consider to be a fairly moderate Republican. Yes. And um, I think so-called moderate Republicans can attract votes here across even Democratic votes and independent votes um, if they're about, you know— fiscal responsibility and things like that. I think people are right there and saying that, you know, Republicans do a pretty good job with the economy uh, and, and like like a lot of that message. So when you get into the social issues and running their lives of, of people, that the um, people, there's a streak in Colorado, which I think is a more libertarian streak, which is I don't want you messing with what I do in the bedroom or anything in my personal right. life. And, you know, if you're going to go there, forget it. And with the Dobbs decision, I think a lot of more people will move to Colorado from places like Missouri or Texas, Oklahoma. Do you see that? Well, certainly we have, at least currently, enshrined um, abortion rights in, in, in the state. Um, and we're an early leader historically um, on abortion rights. Right. Um, so I think, um, I don't know if people will move here, um, but, you know, I think um, you're going to be one of those, you know, we've got like Wyoming and Utah and states around us where abortion is going to be either banned or severely restricted. Right. Um, you know, people will come and get services here. All right. Let's talk about famous people we've met. You've met so many more famous people. <laughs> and you talk about Harvey Milk that kind of gave you chills, like he was a magical presence. Yeah. Who else was? I'll just say this: that I used to go to press conferences, try to be Jerry Bell, ask a question or two. But the guy who kind of intimidated me just by standing there was Tim Tebow, of all people. <laughs> I, I I found myself being nervous talking to the guy. You and, know, I I got to say this: I, I know a lot of people from a football standpoint can't stand Tim Tebow, right. and, and that he wasn't that good. As a human being, yes. he is a wonderful person. He walks his talk. I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, he's he he's not hypocritical at all. And unfortunately, it attracted this huge amount of attention was a distraction. I look at now. I follow Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson posted. Can we just more- say time out on Tebow because Kaplis and I got him on the field. Do you remember that Kyle Orton was struggling? Kaplis oh, yeah. was a big fan. Yeah. I finally said. They suck so bad. Give them a chance. And I would go to press conferences and ask John, you know Fox. I call him yeah. you know Fox because he said you, you know, know him. Yeah. Say, you know what he, how he talked. I said, why don't you give Tebow a chance? And eventually he did, and the rest was history, and Dan went wild. It kind of hurt our show because he got 
Tebow syndrome. It's like Tourette's, but you keep talking about yeah. Tebow. Or- but anyway, I think it's it's interesting growth because Russell Wilson, if you follow him, Christian, he is uh, he's always he's always posting. He posts more about religion than yes. Tim Tebow ever did. And I think Russell Wilson, by the way, is great. And his wife, I think they're the king and queen of Denver now. And they're giving people. They, you know, they they're not all just about money for themselves. They go to hospitals. They do all the right things. They're yes. wonderful people. Outside, you, you just want to root for a guy like that to, to, to do well. And that's kind of how I felt about Tebow. I wanted him to do well. Um, and fortunately, his skill set, it, it wasn't there. Right. Boy, some of those left-handed passes I could picture them now. <laughs> but he was a gamer, and he still is now. Let's get back to the question, because oh, you're the guy, who, who are the three or four or five people who you said, right. wow, I'm talking to this guy. <laughs> Did you ever get intimidated by anybody? Um, yes. Who? Henry Kissinger. One of the earliest years I was here, Henry Kissinger was coming to speak. I think it was either to the Yale Club or Harvard Club or one of those clubs, and they arranged for an interview with Henry Kissinger, and... So like I dress up, you know, I'm going to be super respectful and I'm studied up and ready to do this interview. I'm sitting in this hotel room. Kissinger walks in. He walks up to the table, takes off his watch, puts it on the table and says, you got five minutes, kid. Oh, no pressure. <laughs> so I'm sitting there like, I've got to bring back the goods. So yes. like I, I can't even remember what I asked him, but I got enough, Right. Right. I sit there and I said, you know, if that happened to me today, I would just say, because then I could do it now. Why are you being such an asshole? <laughs> was, Try that in the courtroom <laughs> when a judge says you have five minutes. Yeah, uh, well, yeah. you know, but I could. See, but what I learned from that was, okay, this guy knows how to. He's a negotiator, yes. right? I should have negotiated. Yes. And I didn't because I was in, totally intimidated. You should have taken off your watch and said. 18 minutes. Yeah. You know, he probably would have respected that to no end. Right. But I was just this young guy and I, you know, I was intimidated. Who else? Um, I have some that are intimidations are just weird. Tell us. Um, I interviewed Timothy Leary once and um, the interview started this way. I'm high on mescaline right now. <laughs> and it went downhill from there. Um, I interviewed Dr. Ruth Westheimer once. Yeah. She arrived at the station in a Rolls Royce with the fur around her shoulders. And this was like when she was just kind of really a new thing. And um, she proceeded to tell me that how her vibrator was better than any other man that she'd had. (laughs) (laughs) How are you going to argue with that? Well, probably not. And then... um, Let's see. What, what is another one? Oh, and then and then I have my all-time fail, total fail. I interviewed the Dalai Lama, but this was at right at the beginning of when free Tibet was a happening thing. People in Marin County, if you, if you know Bay Area, they knew about it. I'm a 22 year old kid. I know nothing about mm-hmm. it, right? But I am doing this public affairs show, and I have to interview him, and you know. He's wonderful. I'm like the world's worst interviewer on this because I'm such an idiot. And that one, that's the one I'd love to have back, man, because um, that was such a blown opportunity. I think yeah, most people know what they would say if they greeted him. Yeah, I just hello, Dolly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, but you know, that was one. Um, let's see. I was trying to think of some of the other ones that I had. Um, what about presidents? Well, I did get an interview with Barack Obama before he became president. And it was was at, that when he came to the tattered cover? No, this is when he held this huge rally in Civic Center. Oh, I, I was there. Yeah, it went that was all big. the way back to yes. the state capitol. Um, what had happened with that one was kind of interesting because, I don't know, about a week before that or so, um, I interviewed Joe Biden on the phone um, and had a great conversation with him um, about particularly Iran at that he had at one time proposed an idea for, um, I'm sorry, Iraq, um, of partitioning right. partitioning Iraq into like three Tri different states, state. which I still think was a really good idea. Right. Um, and and he, I think he was kind of surprised. I don't know if anybody ever gave him questions about that, but he had been on the Senate Foreign Relations mm -hmm. Committee, the head of it, and had a good head for that kind of stuff. And well, we had a really great conversation. Because you started by saying, hey, I think that's a great idea yeah. you have for Iraq. And yeah. he wanted, how long did that go on? For a couple hours? <laughs> yeah. You know, he was very talkative. And, and so anyway, a few days after that interview, I'm out somewhere and my phone rings. And it's the Obama campaign. And they go, well, you know, Obama's coming to Denver and we're only granting um, like three or four interviews after he does his rally, and we want you to be one of those people. And at that time, I was a reporter, and I was also the, the news director, I think at that time still. And I said, you know, we really, I really would like to have my morning show people do this interview because we want to promote them and all that. And he went, no, 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 you don't understand. It's you or we don't do it. Um, so I'm convinced that Joe Biden got me that interview. I, I don't know... How? I don't know that for certain, but I'm pretty sure he did. Nice. Joe Biden. And by the way, I got I got five minutes with um, Obama, and after I asked the first question, they started giving the rap cue. Oh, no. But Obama couldn't have been nicer, took a picture with me. He was, he was wonderful. And um, I have to say, he was very nice. But it was like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> what big events have you covered? I mean, when I had a press pass, uh, I think I have a... I have my Rockies thing hanging in my studio. But one day I saw a huge line at the downtown, lower downtown tattered cover. I said, what's going on? They said, Senator Obama is oh, yeah. signing the audacity of hope. Yeah. And it was like a three-hour line. I went to the front. I said, hey, I'm with the press. I <laughs> said, come with me. Uh. And he set me down right beneath the podium. Yeah. And I got to watch him that far away. And then when he said signing books, I saw an open chair and I just sat there and I watched for three hours as people came through the line and interacted with him. And he was great until it was my turn after three hours. He <laughs> thought he was done. He wanted to smoke a cigarette. And I said, hey, can I, can you sign my book? He, yeah, here you go. You know, but uh, now, well, those were great yeah. friggin' days. I covered a lot of political conventions. Tell us about that. Um, my favorite one was with um, George Bush, the first one. <laughs> yes. Uh, was, which is uh, in New Orleans, and we went with the Colorado delegation. Um, so at these conventions, I th think people who cover them, um, maybe the public doesn't know, usually the day before the convention gets started, they have this big, huge party for the press. So in New Orleans, the party was at the convention center, and you walked in there, and there's Chef Prudhomme and all the top chefs oh. in New Orleans right. cooking free. 
the Neville brothers are on stage playing all night long. And there's 10,000 people at this party. I saw former owners of stations of mine walking with hookers, drunk off their rear. I saw some of my San Francisco politicians then (laughs) also (laughs) there hanging out, getting drunk. But people, I'm not making it up. The food was so incredible that people went outside and kind of forced themselves to vomit and went oh, back. No. And went back in. I thought Denver had a great one. I bet yeah. you were there Denver's, at Elitches. But I have to finish my New yeah, Orleans please. story. So the whole time we were there. Unless it involves a lot more throwing uh, up. No, no, this is all any foreign. So we're there with the Colorado delegation, and Senator Bill Armstrong is telling everybody that the VP candidate's going to be Jack Kemp. Now, was Bill Armstrong drinking? Because no. that would be good. No. Okay. But it's going to be Jack Kemp, going to be Jack Kemp. So the deal was, I don't know if you remember this, Bush was coming down on a riverboat, and he was going to walk off with his VP. I don't remember that. So the riverboat pulls up, and he walks off with this guy, Dan Quayle. And the phrase, jaws literally dropped, was what the Colorado delegation looked like. They had no idea who the hell Dan Quayle was. Um, And they were just stunned. (laughs) <laughs> so this had to be 1988. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess that's 88. Right. I don't know. I always, I have trouble matching. No, no, years I can. Yeah, Reagan was from 80 to 88, and then Bush but, run with Quayle. Yeah, and I just, I so remember that. I could just never forget that. Um, how shocked they were. Same convention. Um, the Democratic opposition had set up a little operation to, you know. Combat the lies. <laughs> right. So Pat Schroeder was there. Uh-huh. So I went to get an interview with Pat Schroeder. She says, come to my hotel. It's in the French Quarter. And so I come to the hotel, and she says, you know, coming up. I open the door, and her hotel room is like literally a bed. There's, there's nothing else right. in there. It's just like this dinky little uh-huh. hotel room. So laying down on the bed, <laughs> I interviewed Pat Schroeder. <laughs> so I said, I've been in bed with Pat Schroeder. No, but... <laughs> Well, your wife had been in bed with her, too. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. But, you know. Uh, I was there in Civic Center Park when she started crying. We, that Was that before your time? That was before me, I believe. When she decided she wasn't yeah. going to run. And when she started crying. I mean, it wasn't just a little. Yeah, she really. Oh, yeah. she let loose. It was unbelievable. My brother, my older brother and I were watching it like, whoa, what's happening? Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of strange ones there. That, that was one. um we had wasn't uh, Gary Hart in the mix right uh, then? Well, here's the other thing. Yeah, well, I have a couple of Gary Hart stories. Um, one I'm not sure if I should tell or not. Please, it's a but podcast. I'll, You've I already guess, said I guess I fucking, can, didn't you? Oh uh, yeah, I think I did. Um, as I mentioned to you, my wife had been political director for the Democratic Party. Yes, and she worked for Bowie Sewell, who later ran for Senate and didn't make it. Right. Um, so. When Gary Hart got out of the race first time, I believe it's his first time. Because of Donna Rice monkey yeah, business? Yeah. Right. He got out and All then right. he got back. So I found myself with my wife and some other people up in Keystone at a house that Bowie had. And this is where Gary Hart was hiding with his wife. And we're watching, I'm watching college football games with Gary Hart in this place. 
And it was the strangest environment ever. Did you talk to him about uh, it? Um, not really, because, you know, I'm there because my wife works. You know, it's kind of one of these difficult things where you... Right. But it, I, I won't go into a lot of detail on it, but it was, it was weird. Later on, I'm at the Christmas party for the office. And Bowie gets up there and he knows what I do. Right. right? And he says... We're going to be really busy tomorrow. Gary's getting back into the race. So what do I do with that? Is he playing me? What is he doing? You know, um, I don't know. I don't think he, I don't think he knew. But what did I, you do with but that? I, but, but I felt awkward. I said, I can't report this, but I'm going to call the station and I'm going to have somebody else track it down, which we did and we broke the story. But, um, you know, in the end, I think, yeah, he wanted it out there. There was like a trial balloon or whatever. And then to finish out the trifecta of stories, I ended up covering the Iowa caucuses, which was just the most bizarre thing I've ever covered. But I'm, I'm in suburban Des Moines, and I have one of those brick cell phones, like the early brick right. cell phone. It's the first time I did a live shot on a cell phone from, like, long distance. And they get to... Um, you know, they, they call out the names and they say, is anybody here for, you know, so-and-so? It says, is there anybody here for Gary Hart? Is there anybody here for Gary Hart? Is there anybody for Gary Hart? Huh. And then people start laughing. Oh. That's says after the uh, redo. Yeah, he got yeah. back in. No, and, it, it was a joke at that point. Yeah, and, you know, it was just like, I just remember this is going on while I'm on the air doing live, you know. And uh, so that was kind of the end of it. I have a copy of Gary Hart's speech, they they didn't do a press release. They just get, he wrote it by hand, and they gave us a photocopy of what he had written for his final farewell speech. And I still have that uh, in my possession. I have never longed to see Gary Hart's speech since he spoke at my brother's law school graduation, <laughs> and it was well later tedious, he, he did tedious. later he did do a a, cup, a weekend show on KOA for a little while. That had to be tedious. It, it was. <laughs> it, it wasn't. It wasn't good. Um, Who were the most entertaining political types you ever encountered? Most entertaining. Hmm. I mean, John Hickelooper's a fun guy to talk to, don't you think? You've talked yeah, to him many times. Yeah, you know, um, I don't know. That, uh, yeah, he, he's okay. I think he, um, I don't know if I would pick him as like super entertaining. I mean, he's good with a good quip and everything like that. But um, I'm trying to really think of people who are really funny. Um. <laughs> how, about, how about that Michael Bennett? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, speaking of which, I keep watching this one commercial he has on now. Yes. Have you seen this one where the guy's catching the fish? Yes. Okay. And then at the end of the commercial. He says it's my fish. He ca I caught that fish. I caught that fish. And I'm going like, but you just showed the other guy caught. It's like, I, I, just, yeah, I, like, I don't I, understand that. I built that road. No, you didn't build that road. I, right. just, I, I, I digress, but it just, I'm going, why did, he, why did they put that at the end? Because I think it was supposed to be a joke, but it's doesn't work <laughs> and why is he walking alone along that oh, path well that other one yeah the and he, and, and, he, and he has no water with him or right. like what you do when you're and on he's a hike. shuffling like he's joe biden yeah. but he's only about 40 years younger <laughs> yeah, isn't yeah. he yeah i don't know i've invited you on the podcast senator it's time joe day will be coming back i i don't know i remember i made dan Kaplan's really mad because senator bennett came on <laughs> when dan, dan was, was on gone 
And Dan was furious. I said, well, it wasn't that great of an interview, so you didn't miss all that much. But well, He's always been a tough guy to get on the air, but uh, I found that when he did join us on the air, he was always very good. Right. And, very, and there would be no reason for him not to come back on the air again and again because it would do him well. And there are certain people, I think, honestly, he just doesn't like to do that. And um, there are other people that are much more accessible, um, you know, um, Congressman Crow is one of them, um, Joe Neguse, um, Ken Buck, um, you know, always willing to come on. And, right. And when he comes on, he tells you what he thinks, and it's it's refreshing, right. even if you don't agree with him. Although there's been a change in Ken Buck, but that's no. another story. I've done a lot of interviews with him. Jared Polis, what do you think? I had him on episode 102, and I gave him a lot of grief that he's going to win big, and I do think he's going to stop Heidi Ganahl. Sorry, Heidi, you were on my show too, but she picked Danny Moore, and she doesn't seem to have what it takes to campaign hard. If Polis wins huge in a year where Republicans are winning elsewhere, doesn't that make him a presidential contender? Uh, I think it does, and I and I, and I do believe, although he would deny it now, that he has maybe that kind of ambition for sure. Um Super smart guy. Um, when he's talking about an issue, he can talk very deep into that issue. Um, it's impressive. Um, and I also think he did something that was really smart, which was when he came into office, he had a plan of some things that he wanted to get done. And he moved so fast. Um, I, I think, you know, the opposition didn't really know what to do. Um, now it's kind of settled down, but I think that's, that's a key now, um, is to use those first few years when you get elected to get the stuff that you want done. Because if you wait, you know, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows? Well, I, what think, you're... I think you are gifted and I like to think my talents are really, uh, being a lawyer and people pay me to think ahead to a trial. What will that be like? What do we need to get there? How can we leverage the best result so maybe we don't have to go to trial? You are a radio pro. You're a journalism pro. And some cases I can't make successful regardless, right? You have sure. to have it. Could you, if you had a big backer, make a go of radio, AM talking radio, news talk radio, Denver, Colorado? Honestly, I think it's 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 tough. I think, in my mind, it's more likely that you could make like an all news station a go now that the metro area is big enough to support that with enough critical mass. Those stations rely on a lot of people coming in and out. Um, that's how they sell their product to right. advertisers, um, as opposed to other stations that rely on quarter hour listening. Um, the news stations are big cumulative audience, short amount of time. Um, you can make a go on that. I think there's room for it. I think it's been an interesting time. I think radio, I'll be honest, missed the boat when the Rocky Mountain News folded. And now the Denver Post, sadly, is owned by a horrible owner. Um, and its significance has diminished somewhat. That was a time to really launch something to fill in that void. What's happened since then is a lot of things within the community. Um, there's Denverite. Um, there's like a news break. Um, Axios has a local operation going. Uh, that's pretty good. 
Um, my, my partner, Vicki Collins has a North Denver website and social media and site. And you say your partner, your, your love partner, my love Julie partner. sadly passed yeah, away. Yeah. Yes. Um, she's, she's covering stories about people and things that are happening in North Denver. So it's a hyper local approach to journalism. And we're seeing a lot of that fill the void because the bigger entities don't have the staff and the people that dig that low. Um, and, um, so some people are seeing that, um, what's his name? Jim Handerhy, 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 um, with Axios, he gets it and he's launched these local, but he's not hitting the ears. Can radio make it go? Or what about Sirius XM? Is that too much of a dent podcast? People are streaming through the cards. uh, You know, I, I'll be honest with you. Um, even as somebody who's been in radio, I get up in the morning and I go through, couple different webs, you know, web-based mm. things, maybe a podcast or two. I'm not really listening to much to over the air except for music. Um, I'm a big KBCO fan. Um, and so I, you don't get any radio news uh, anymore? Very little. Um, what I found is is that for because of the economics of the business, there's very little original reporting on radio save for Colorado public radio, which is being is very successful now mm-hmm. because they do go right. in depth and look at things and they have a huge staff. They have probably the biggest news staff in Denver right now. They include that includes the, the newspaper. Um, they're 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 they have a lot of people and they give them a lot of time to do really good pieces. And aside from them, uh, most of it's a headline service or what I've saw or already heard um, through my websites or sc- scanning on the web. Isn't podcasting great? You don't have to run to break. Isn't that part yeah. of the problem too? Because you can skip oh. ahead. And by the way, pro tip for my podcast, because I'm a court reporter's dream. I speak really slow. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess I could have trained myself, changed my voice, but this is the way I talk. But if you put me on double or triple speed <laughs> it is tremendous <laughs> tremendous the intellect that i display at that pace yeah i think i think that's the biggest complaint people have with commercial radio is that it's too commercial um you know that there's just too many spots and the spot breaks are so long it's hard to build audience for a talk show right when, um and then the other thing that we did and it's just my opinion is we created this monster and the monster was um, personal endorsement ads. So when you turn, no matter what radio station you turn on, this is what you hear. It's like, I'm Bob and you know, I mm-hmm. use this window service or right. whatever. Um, Drink this kind of water. Well, Take relief factor. Isn't it you funny get, you get, how all those Salem guys get cured by the same <laughs> medicine relief factor? Well, and then it's kind of like you have a whole stop set where you've got five different people on the station telling you stuff that you should buy. Yes. Um, but the reason why that happens is, is I think they get a fee for that. And I know they and, and do. so here's what happens. And this is how I feel about it. And I, I know people would argue against this. The pay level in radio is so low that um, literally, if you're really good at doing ads, you can almost double your income by having, you know, doing, putting your voice and your, your name on something. Well, these days, although I have to say when Chris Olinger came to me and said, we want you to do this and that, and the money was great, and the benefits, 
and then I got advertising on top of it. Yeah, so well, you can make some good money on but the not, ads. But not so much anymore. Yeah, right. I, you know the. What's happened over there at your shop? Well, tell, tell everybody all the changes, and you don't have to talk shit. But if you want to, go no, ahead. I, I really don't. I mean, um, you know, the the reality is the reality of the business. The staff gets keeps getting smaller, and so when you do that, you sacrifice quality. Um, you make it harder for everybody's doing you know more than one job, um, so it takes a toll, and it's not as fun anymore. I mean, that's not just. Of where I've been, it's everywhere in right. radio. It's everywhere in broadcast television. People are getting out of that. The hours suck. It's it's not that fun of a thing anymore, um, and uh, it's it's just really become more difficult and cumbersome. But that's the economics of the business, and you know you can you you could some people do really well in it, and then other people on the sort of the bottom of the totem pole are doing poorly. You know, there are some people at radio stations running the the board who are making about what people make at McDonald's. Right. And, um, you know, that's a problem. And you know why that's a problem? Because as I found out with the producer who was pretty good, came from Mike Rosen's show. I was the first guy he worked for at KNUS, probably didn't make much. Then he got hired to do more. Kirk Whitland got his own podcast. Turned out he was a neo-Nazi. <laughs> I mean, so when you pay low wages, why is somebody going to work for a radio station unless they're a, lot a true of, believer? You, you know? have a lot of turnover, and um, you know it's it, it's difficult. Um, I was always of the mind, and my personal philosophy was: I'd rather have fewer people paid well than a lot of people paid little, mm -hmm. um, and and be able to keep and retain people. You need um, quality. Do you yeah. see quality in Colorado right now? No. Who's doing a good job? Well, I I, I think um, Colorado Public Radio does a really good job. I, I, like I said, they they still have an economy of scale that works for them. But in television, like you know, the worst thing that happened to the news business was the pandemic because we started doing interviews on Zoom um, and pretty much um, you know the pandemic's more or less over. And now I watch Channel 9 or Channel 4 or Channel 7, and they're still doing interviews on Zoom with people. And, you know, the audio sucks. Um, the, it's grainy video. Um, but it's, you know, you can turn it around a lot faster. I, I, when I was in my final days at KOA, I would sit there all day at a screen. This is during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And go from one Zoom deal to another. And I could turn out twice as much work as opposed to having to go to everything. Right. Um, so I can go to four courtrooms in the morning. Yeah. So what? So what happens is is once, you know, a corporation is their business to make money, they realize, hey, we don't have to do right. this, and people still watched even when we had this crappy video mm -hmm. and crappy audio on, or you know, um, so you see it. I see it on, you know, NBC Nightly News. You know, these Zoom interviews. I'm kind of what going about, like, right, that but, never would have happened. If there wasn't a pandemic, this would not be happening. Here's why I see it sort of a young Terry Bell, Marshall Zellinger. And I see Kyle Clark, mm -hmm. a good, Jeremy Hohola. There are others. And I can mention, you know, great people, Brian Moss, you know, through the years. Yeah, well, Tony Kovaleski. Tony Kovaleski, definitely. You know, the thing is, good work still being done. It is. And, there, you know, the, the one thing that you can say about that other stuff is that it frees up, hopefully, money to do the original content. 
And what I always believed in, the way to win, and we were always in there to win it, is original content rules. If you're just doing the same stuff that everyone else is doing, why bother? Right. Um, and and I like Kyle Clark breaking the wall and stating yeah. his opinion, not dancing around it. Here's my take, like the editorial page. I think that's cool. I yep. think they should have a, t- a chance for people to come and reply to him. That's my only. That's my only thing with him. I love Kyle Clark. He puts it out there on social media where everybody can respond to. Yeah, but it's not the same as it's not equal. Right. Right. Um, but what do you do if somebody won't really treat you fairly, no matter what? Do you debate them or not? I mean, it's, you're in the journalism business. I'm more in the debating business. Mm-hmm. So you have to think, will I talk to this person? Will that be productive? Like if I were to talk to Tina Peters, for example, or uh, some lawyer who's a big proponent of the big lie. It kind of comes down to if you can't agree on basic facts, it gets a little problematic. But one thing I think we can agree on is that you worked with a lot of great people at KOA. Alex Stone and I became great friends mm-hmm. covering Kobe Bryant. We roomed together. I was a KOA legal analyst for a little while there. Yeah. And you, I got paid by Channel 7 and KOA to be up in Eagle for that trial, yeah. which I would have loved to have covered anyway. Yeah, I hired Alex at age 18. He was a CU student. Yes. He grew up, as I think I mentioned before, I think I mentioned this, that he grew up in Santa Rosa, yeah, where I lived. He course. went to it the same. Favoritism. The, the guy's sa- not that talented. Same junior high and high school. Right. Anyway. Um, he, is, he is something. A, um, a, a program director, a guy named Jeff Hillary, said, had worked in Santa Rosa as a program director. And Alex, when he was 16 years old, was on the radio there in Santa Rosa working at this station. And it was just loved radio and jeff said to me he's you know he's going to see you you should talk to this kid and he walked in my office we had within five minutes i knew i was gonna put him on the air <laughs> and we started our mama weekends and everything went from there and now he's an abc or you know national correspondent wife and beautiful children yeah, it's, it's it's got, they go to disneyland like yeah they love disneyland <laughs> yeah i mean it's ridiculous yeah well they get a discount because they're home like disney you know? he uses his press pass <laughs> yeah. yes no he's, he's great and what about carol mckinley she is somebody who takes well she hasn't taken a licking because she's always been great but now she's getting more credit she was more behind yeah. the scenes now the work yeah. she does for the Gazette is awesome. Yeah. Um, I hired Carol, and I hired her. Um, the first time I ever heard her was on another radio station, and she was doing, a, I, this. I'm not making this up, a, a pregame for the St. Louis Cardinals. This was before we had our beautiful Colorado Rockies, um, I believe. And um, there was something about her that popped, and we had an opening, and I talked to her, and she and I, uh, mostly her, went through the John Benet right. Ramsey story together, and she cultivated resources on that story like nobody I ever knew, and um, it really became. She really kind of owned it. For quite I think a while. I got to know Vicky then, right? Yeah, was, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Vicky was probably. And, and then during there. Columbine, I ended up doing a lot of CNN segments with April Zesbach. Yeah. I liked her. Who else at KOA? I hired, hired April when she was on her honeymoon. Right. I called her on her honeymoon and hired her. That's nice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you come back from your honeymoon, you got a new job. Yeah. Um, I had I had been listening to her again on another station, and I knew it was going to blow up. 
the other station, not because of her, but because it just was an arrangement that wasn't going to work. So it blew up and I started to call her and he goes, well, she's out of town and it's on her honeymoon. And mm -hmm. I go, well, do you have her cell phone number? And they went, yeah. So I called her and on her honeymoon. That's pretty, we laugh about it now. That's and she, a great call. And she just um, retired. So, yes, she did. And she's uh, living in uh, Las Vegas and she and her husband and her son, they have a big pickup truck and this big, huge trailer and they're going like traveling all over the place. It's really cool. I don't think you're done. What's in the future? And before we talk about your future, you were almost part of the past. You yeah. would not know it sitting here, but for those of us who follow you on Facebook, for a while there, it's like Jerry may die. Yeah. What? How many times did you almost die lately? <laughs> well, um, let's see. I this all started. Um, I was getting ready for. I wanted to really increase my bicycle riding because. During COVID and all that, I was, you know, I put on the COVID-19. Right. <laughs> <And, laughs> I never uh, heard that before. Yeah. That's a good and, one. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, we needed YouTube for that. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway, I, I had um, sort of a degenerative joint in my right foot, and I needed to get this fixed so I could ride. And so I had this toe surgery, and I have an artificial joint just below my big toe here. Um, I don't know, several days after that, I'm waking up, uh, cause Vicky, uh, my partner is a producer for NBC and she had a 3am wake up call to go do something for the today mm -hmm. show. And I'm getting up, my foot is throbbing. I'm thinking it's infected. Something's somehow I got infected. Right. And I said, I said, I said, I think I need to go to the hospital. And of course, she says, well, tough, you know, I've got to go do a live shot. <laughs> so I said, let's, I think it was me that said, let's call the paramedics because I don't even sure I can walk on this. Right. So we call the paramedics and the fire department, all that, and they show up. The last thing I remember was them taking me down the stairs, like on a chair. And um, what happened was I got to the hospital, Presbyterian St. Luke's, and as soon as I got there, I had a pulmonary embolism because I had a blood clot and it went up and caused the embolism. Oh. The embolism um, caused a cardiac arrest. And then uh, I had a second cardiac arrest. So I sort of like coded twice. So if the paramedics had not been called, it, yeah, you'd have been gone. And, and yeah, if I had this, uh, yeah, I would have been dead uh, if I had not been at the hospital this whole half thing. God, happened best call you ever made. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, I was in a drug-induced coma for about two and a half weeks because um, you know I did some serious racking of my body, <laughs> and um, you know the only things that I really remember from it was um, having delusions, which was of grandeur. Not of grandeur. Um, they were. Um, some of them were really funny, actually. But when you have these delusions, it's like a dream, but it's like a dream times 10. It's like you're smelling it, tasting it, everything. Was that the embolism or uh, the drugs? The drugs, I think. Mm -hmm. So um, I had this one, which I thought is the hilarious one, I'll tell. Please. As, um, I had this th thing by, that my youngest niece 
Alex, um, had met this guy and he was some sort of like middle Eastern prince. And they came in and had dinner with us like at a holiday time. And then sometimes later, um, they got engaged. And so there was going to be this big marriage ceremony in wherever his homeland country was that was at this huge, you know, like castle. And there was all this protocol we were going through and how we were going to handle all this. And this is going to be a big story because he's Muslim, she's Jewish. You know, it's huge. Yeah. Um, I learned about the engagement. Um, I'm trying to call and tell KOA and NBC News about it, but having trouble getting through like you do in a sort of a weird dream. Oh, but this was so real to me that when I came out of all this and my family's visiting me, I'm going, why aren't they talking about the wedding? That's how real it Between was. Prince Mohammed bin Salman I mean, and Princess Leia. I mean, it yeah. sounds really goofy now, but I mean, it was so incredibly real to me. Um, you know, and I had another one where I was getting arrested down in New Mexico. <laughs> so Where we're, in New Mexico? <laughs> for doing what? Um, well, I don't want to say. All right. <laughs> it was only but, a dream. You're not no, guilty. No, but no, I'd advise you not no, to say I, it anyway. No, in this one, I was in a car accident, and I had some kind of issue where I couldn't, my sight was being affected, so I had, like, smashed up a bunch of cars. And I ended up in this jail, and I had to figure out, um, get a lawyer <laughs> to get somebody to come in and do like all these tests to show that I, that I was better call Saul. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it would have been great. <laughs> but anyway, there was stuff like that. Um, but also, um, through this course of all this, between that and rehab, it was about a three month deal. Mm -hmm. So most We're full of great dreams. But most of that. Um, flat on my back. Okay. So I lost, you know, all this muscle. Um, I had, you know, pretty much stressed out my whole body. Mm -hmm. Had to sort of, I wouldn't say learn to walk again, but learn how to get the strength up enough to walk. Um, I had great people at Spalding Rehab um, that really got me going, and they were really tough. I was, like, exhausted most of the time, but they just got me walking. Nice. Um, and I always still have some minor little balance issues sometimes. <laughs> and, uh, so, and I always just say, if that's all I've got from after all I've been through, that's okay. You know, <laughs> but I'm working on those. Um, but overall I feel very healthy. I was thankfully healthy before all this happened. I was in reasonably good shape, you know, didn't have any other issues or else this, you know, might've turned yeah, out. Yeah. You were going bike riding all over the world. Well, yeah. Right? Yeah. I love, I love to take bicycling vacations and things like that. Yeah. I want to do that. It's, it's great. Great way to see the world. Um, I love traveling, um, which thankfully for my retirement I can do now. Um, just came back from Greece, which was a fantastic um, trip. Um, such nice people. Met, uh, I was telling you this, that when we had lunch the other day, I met this, uh, well, my Vicky, actually, she loves dogs. So we were staying at this little small town in a nice place, but right across the street was a very humble home. And they had a dog named Ellie. And so Vicky was just going gaga over Ellie. And that sort of led to making friends with this family that lived there. And they had a 15-year-old son who was learning English in high school so he could translate. So long story short, we ended up having dinner with them. 
and they made this wonderful dinner. We're sitting out. Their house kind of had like a front little patio. Uh, they were very modest means. You know, they're, you know, dad's right. wearing a shirt with dirt on it, and, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but the most interesting thing about it is we were the really the first Americans they had sat down with like this. And the first thing they asked about were mass shootings. And, you know, this is what we're known for in the world now. Gosh, how many did you have to cover? Uh, well, Columbine, for sure. <laughs> you know, Aurora Theater shooting. There's, I know there's a few others in between there. Um, and then um, I was in the hospital when the Boulder shooting happened. And I'm watching it on television. And I'm looking at it. And I'm going, man, I'm glad I'm not there. So, yeah, it got terrible to talk about on talk radio. It's the same arguments, you know, give teachers guns. Blah, blah. How about we take some guns out of yeah. society? Are you going to get more politically active? I don't know. Are you, do you feel like you're at a new stage of life? I don't see you just taking it easy because I think you care too much about the community. Well, I care about Denver. Denver has been so good to me. Um, I think I do want to get in, involved. And, you know, I do like politics. And I do like... You know, I I feel personal about Denver, and I know there's a lot of people who knock Denver now, and there's some good reasons to knock it. Um, you know, the homeless issue certainly is a really troublesome thing, but you know, there's still a lot of great communities. Um, I go to a lot of street fairs and just community events now that I never had a chance to go to. Uh, you know, some of them are ethnic, some of them are just about the community. Uh, they're wonderful. Um, and I see as I go around the city, some really good things, you know, some of my favorite restaurants now are in five points. If you would have asked me in 1986, when I was here, mm -hmm. if I'd even go down to five points, I probably would have said, well, maybe not, you know, right. um, but now, um, there's this whole new revitalization that's going on there. Some people are a little upset about it because it's gentrification, but a lot of those businesses that I'm going to in restaurants are all minority owned. And um, they're just wonderful. And um, I enjoy that a lot. Um, I, I see it all different, different ways. Um, but there's the thing I like about cities is that you have neighborhoods and that they have a certain culture. I live now in the Berkeley neighborhood in Northwest Denver. Um, that was a heavy Hispanic and mm -hmm. Italian community. Um, my house is right across from the Holy Family Church. They're having their big bazaar nice. this weekend, which is always fun. Sausage uh, sandwiches? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that. Um, but I'm right near Tennyson Street, which is this beautiful shopping street. And this is a cool thing about Denver. From the days when Denver had streetcars, long before I've arrived here, there are all these streets that were these shopping strips. And most of them still exist. So right around the corner from me, um, I have everything I need. All the different kinds of shops that can satisfy my needs, restaurants that, that I want. I really don't have to get in my car. If I do get in my car, it's like a mile to get what I need. I've got a park two blocks away from me. Um, there's still the cultural flavor of the people who've been in that neighborhood. I have a neighbor, um, Hispanic guy named Jim. He's we call him. I live on Vrain Street. He call we call him the Mayor of Vrain. He's been there for like 38 years. Jesus, you're going to give your exact address on yeah. in a second. But what I love is your affection for Denver. I wrote about moving my law firm to the DTC, and it was the most emotional column I've ever written. By the way, my mom said, you're a good writer, just like your, your <laughs> mom said. And uh, 
But it's good. You are a good writer. And I ended up singing the praises of Denver because I'm rooting for Denver. I want it to come back in my lifetime, and I've seen it through ups and downs, even more than you have. But I've always felt the love of Denver in your bones, and that's what made you a great Denver radio personality. I don't like people who come on the radio and they say, I don't like Denver, Denver's hell, Denver in decay. But bullshit, build it up. We're all in it together. You know, that's the thing. When I came to Denver, it was right at that time where, you know, there was 12 pages, single space uh, foreclosures in the paper and Rocky Mountain News back then, right? And um, But people at that time and Mayor Pena and his administration, they were Mm -hmm. very bold. And they could, even through those times, they envisioned a convention center, an airport, all these things now that we reap benefits from. So what I would like to see, and this is just my personal opinion, I look at the downtown situation, and when I walk down there now, I'll be honest, there's empty storefronts. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not a lot of people downtown. Mm-hmm. The reality is, and I've talked to people, you be, might be one of them, but other people who've moved their offices out of those office towers to other places in the city, um, like Cherry Creek North or things like that, and they're telling me the buildings they left behind are 50% vacant. Right. Um, the restaurants are gone. And the restaurants are going away. So what do you do about that? And my idea is, you know, I don't know. I'm not a genius <laughs> by any chance of financial one, but I'm trying to figure out how do you incentivize the repopulation of downtown. I'm talking about people living there. Um, before Lodo exploded, we were starting to have that in downtown. Right. And I think when you create a critical mass of people, uh, maybe you do it by some kind of loan program that is makes it cheaper to move into that area than other areas. So like first-time buyers... Maybe. Yeah, I call it the government end of downtown, and it's funny because the woman I quoted, Amy B. Hill Manzanares at the Delectable Egg, she calls it the financial end, and it's hurting. But Lodo and the new lower, lower downtown is doing pretty good. So it might be like Berkeley where they get so great that it spills back over toward the capital. You would, you would hope that, but I think that in order to, you know, they're doing right now, I think they're doing a great job of, you know, realigning the 16th Street Mall. Um, that's a great idea, but you got to have people there to want right. to have the things that make, How do we get them there? make a community. And the only way I can think about it is you incentivize it somehow um, to make it, you know, we're in a just tough housing market, um, find a way, to, you know, to um, back loans at a certain level or find some kind of oh, mechanism. That's it. I don't know if it's, that's not my wheelhouse. Like yeah. I said, trials for you, I would say radio and the press. Yeah. But you're thinking about the city. What we need is a leader who can see around those corners, yeah. right? Well, I think there's, there's like got to be. Like Pena did in a way. There, yeah, there's got to be, you got to have, you know, um, try something different there because, you know, there's been some stores that have come into downtown and now they've left, um, you know, and, because there's just not enough critical mass right. down there to support them. There just isn't. Right. And the reality is, um, I, I have friends who are recruiters. They can't recruit anybody that wants to work in an office five days a week. Nobody wants to do right. that anymore. Um, so everyone is downsizing their footprint. So the reality on this office thing is um, we've got a lot of empty stuff. And whether it's ever going to really fill back up again is, you know, the jury's out on that. Um, so... How do you keep it from being a ghost town um, if those offices aren't going to fill up? And 
what makes sense. And I, the only thing I can come up with in my head is to fight, try to figure out how you can get more people to live there and to revitalize it because there are people there and they'll want the amenities um, like I have in my neighborhood where I can walk right. and get everything I want. I lived in Brooks Tower, but only for six months. I did not like downtown living, but maybe I would at a different stage of my life. I think what we need is great leadership. I'd like you to be a part of it. You should get into politics, and your politics are centrist. I like yeah. that. Would, would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I, w- I would think so. I mean, like, I look at, uh, I, Spent a lot of time looking at this homeless stuff. I visited some of these, you know, the tent encampments right. and those tiny houses and things like that. Um, and I think Denver does a really good job of helping people that want to be helped, um, that are really down on their luck, bad times, and want to get restarted. I think we got that. But the, the one area of the homeless problem we don't have, and I don't know what the answer is on this one, is... Um, I really feel, Craig, what we see on our streets is the result of the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of addicted people. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost more opioid abuse than it used to be booze. Mm-hmm. Not so much booze, it's opioids. When I've gone, when they've done sweeps, right. um, it's needles, it's drugs. Um, and, you know, shelters won't take people who have drugs or drink. Right. Um, so where do these people go? Um, and I think we're at this point now where you look at home values here. Like if I have a million dollar house, do I really want somebody living in a tent on the right of way in front of it? I don't think so. And I see this happening by the way, in San Francisco where they were so overly liberal that it just got crazy. And now, you know, to live in San Francisco, like the median home price is almost a million five now. Um, People are starting to say, you got to clean it up. And then you start seeing the mayor there, um, Mayor London, uh, what her name is. London Breed. Yeah, London Breed. She all of a sudden now she's on the warpath right. to clean this up because people are demanding it. Um, so we got to figure it out somehow. And I wish I had the answer to it. But that's what I see. Well, when you have the answer, you'll come back. I'll come back. Two. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. That's was a great start, don't you think? Did yeah. you like doing a podcast? I bet this is the longest yeah. sustained pod or broadcast <laughs> you've done in a long time. Right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe an election night have done more. Right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Aldi. You have so many more stories to tell. I'm so honored that you gave me so much time, Jerry Bell. You're a fascinating. <laughs> it's guy. fun talking with you, Craig. I didn't know that you could cultivate cultivate a voice like that if only i would have known well you know i'd be happy to give you lessons uh, but, you don't you know, think you, yes, i don't know so if you I'm can gonna afford help you me. grow taller too <laughs> anyway jerry you're the best all right be well thank Thanks. you michael of course is a great sponsor of my show but more than that he's my lawyer my end of life planning lawyer and i've got two dogs what about you I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark 
money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Hey, I have some exciting news. I am starting my brand new law firm. It's Attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at CraigsColorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Troubadour, do you like the water? Craig, I feel like after 108 episodes, I, I've I've been promoted, and I and I get a glass of water. It's a nice touch because I had Jerry Bell over to the home studio. I showed him the Troubadour's house. Yes, he liked that. Well, we can see where Clear Channel was. Now it's iHeart. We can't actually see the building, but we can see the buildings above the building. He was startled to know that my home studio is so close to where I broadcast Kaplis and Silverman for almost a decade. Right, and now you're back once again. You're working close to Right home. here with Jerry Bell. It was a hell of an interview, almost two hours long, and man, did we kibitz about everything. That guy's been top reporter over there at KOA since 1986, and he's just left a short time ago, and he's looking at new chapters. It was a remarkable interview. So what, uh, well, I'll look forward to hearing it. And what yes. was the, What was his, um, did you talk about a range of? Everything. Mm-hmm. You know how I like to talk, mm-hmm. especially to you. Well, when we walk, I like what you said about the question we are going to be asked when we get to heaven. Oh, you like that? Yes. Did you make that up? I did. Now, Danny, you heard from somebody else. Be honest. I'm honest. What is it? Tell everybody. God will ask everybody the same question when we go to heaven, and that is, why didn't you look up at the sky more often? You mean as opposed to looking at our smartphones? As opposed to that, but even before smartphones, I thought that people, uh, we just don't look up enough. I know, but Friday afternoon, we are recording this. Alex Jones got hit for almost 50 million bucks. Gosh, I wish I could have prosecuted that case. 
anyway, I was looking at that instead of the sky, but you can't hardly even see the mountains today for some reason. But uh, when we've been walking, sometimes the night sky, sundown, sunset, it's remarkable. The colors, the rainbows, the this, the that, up in the sky, you are right about that. Almost every night, almost every evening in Colorado. It's 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 a glorious thing to behold. And people could paint for a lifetime and not paint yeah. a prettier picture. Very true. And it's just right there. I brought up Alex Jones because the thing that bothers me about that guy, he was in the radio industry, and then he started branching out, and when sponsors would drop him, he said, I'm going to sell my own shit. And he sold like a couple hundred million dollars worth of shit to Rubes, and I'm thinking, how many rubes are there in America? I don't, I mean, I don't know. Isn't it something Isn't it? you need to get? Have you ever bought supplies? Hell, you didn't even have supplies when you got stranded on the tea time. So do you, do you have any food supplies if I needed to come over for about a month? <laughs> Some of that permanent well, stuff lasts for decades? If it was a month, it might be that we might be down to dog food, but we'd make, we'd make it. Don't you have cat food over there, too? That would be next. How many cats do you have? I have two left. Why don't you control your own environment? Why do you give in to the females in your house? No, I knew when I married Lisa that I was going to have to put up with cats. But uh, there has been good, there's been some pretty good attrition. At one point, it was four cats. What did you do to the other two? And I promise, I don't know who left the door open. Oh, that's not nice. He had a bit of a scare. Everybody wants to know about Henry Gunders. He was a star on the show. Is he 100 yet? Dad's 98. He, he's in the middle of a COVID uh, sickness and was in the hospital. And I'm happy to say that they let him out today. He's been in the hospital about three, three days and uh, he's doing okay. Thank you. Craig. And what about Riley? He's got to be at least 98 in dog years. Riley's getting up there too. Oh, man. In the landscape... And I'm looking at my old man on the moon. I'm thinking about Alex Jones because I just can't stand that guy. I can't believe he has an audience. Are there musicians you know about who are exploitative? Have you ever, because you like all kinds of music, but have you ever thought, this guy ain't doing anything real? He's just exploiting the audience? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think of the ones who have been used for political purposes, you know, the the nuge. The Nuge and... Uh, Motor City Madman Ted Nugent. Yeah, I don't he's know how I exploitative. I don't know. That's that's his politics. I guess he's using music for that. But is he talented? Oh, I, I'm not here to say who, who's talented. Yeah, sure. I, imag I imagine he is. He's not my... He's not, you know, he's never been a favorite of mine, but that doesn't mean he, he doesn't have musical talent. What about Kid Rock? The same. I'm not... Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know his songs if, if you played them for me. What about Bruce Springsteen? He gets pretty political. He's a hero of yours. He, he is a hero of mine, and and uh, um, he it gets all he comes gets down to your Yeah, he gets well. No, with with Bruce, it goes deeper than that. I mean, Bruce has a. I think he has a deep, uh, you know, thread of humanity that runs through his music, and uh, you know, if 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 he's used for the you know certain politicians or something, it's uh, it's in that effort to to uh, to bring bring light to the you know, to, to, to politics, bring the important, um, uh, important issues, you know, out, which are, you know, freedom. You know, he talks about America a lot. He's a very right. patriotic man. I mean, he's, he, like he loves you. his country. You too. 
Yeah, of course. Don't take a backseat to the bus. Never. Of course. No, backseat to fact, the bus. In fact, if you were in the same car, I'd suggest you drive him, put him in the backseat. Okay? Bruce gets the front seat, Craig. Oh, no, he any probably day. wants to be driven. Anyway, bottom line is I'll put Heart of Understanding up against any song. First of all, any song is good that starts with the word hard. Then you've got Heart of Understanding. I said I've got one of Denver's most famous longtime news people, and you said I've got a song. And it was the Beatles song, right? I heard the news today, oh boy. That's how they start, yeah. No, Day in the life. And yeah. then I said, we need another one. And you have a beauty, Heart of Understanding. And I know you got political when you wrote that one, correct? Yes, sure. What stirred you up? Well, it was during the Trump era. Um, and and um, everything that, that goes along with it. Heart of understanding It was my little term for, you know, heart of hearing is what people normally... Uh, right. Talk about well, we're not we're not hard of hearing now. We're hard of understanding. That people aren't aren't allowing things to come in. And uh, and I've talked about the you know I talk about the news and how you can get whatever news you want depending on what channel you turn to. And it's very black and white. Um, very. Don't little, you have little a reference nuance. to the Proud Boys in there? Yeah, and even the you know the Proud are getting prouder. So yeah, it was just all about these times. That, that's that song, you know. It it needed to be written, and 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 uh, I don't want to perseverate on it with more songs because I feel like I made my statement on that it one. It was good. People turn on the news, and you have that line in there. I wonder where the truth went. Right. That's beautiful. You're a poet. Well, no. Let's no. hear it. I'm a guitar player who writes songs. And sings them wonderfully. Heart of Understanding by Dave Gunders. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Crowd getting prouder I know we can hear 
together Just listen to the news at night It's black or white, depending on the channel And bloggers don't reveal their source They reinforce, while others they dismantle a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? 
These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, did I tell you this was going to be a doozy? Heart of understanding. This guy is profound. Listen to Dave Gunder's songs three or four times in a row because the words are magical. He's a songwriter. Jerry Bell is a newsman. Extraordinary. What a life he's led. And he's not done. I'm not done. I am working every day in the DTC, but I traveled. I'm exhilarated. I have offices all over Metro Colorado, all over the, the country, really. And I'm taking cases that I like, and I'd like to help you if you have a case. I like it that you listen to my podcast. Please tell a friend. Five stars is so sweet on Apple, Spotify, anywhere you take the time. You know what I do? Dave Gunder's music, YouTube. He's got a catalog there, and you can give him A nice compliment. It wouldn't kill you. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Thanks for listening to episode 108, Jerry Bell. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.